Vespers, or the All Night Vigil, composed in 1915 by Sergei Rachmaninoff. As sublime as Russian sacred music can be, most art isn't good. If all of it were good, none of it would be special. No, 90% of art is poor. Of all the pictures that have been painted down through the centuries, of all the songs composed, poems written, plays performed, books published and films made, how many have lasted even beyond a lifetime? 90% of it is forgettable, a lot of that 90% instantly. Rare as good art is, rarer still are good films about great artists. These are good free, I love them. Hmm. And you were probably painting better when you were 12. <laughs> it's nonsense. I could never paint like this. I'm good, I'm serious. I paint what I see. The world outside. With you. You paint from here. It's wonderful. <laughs> I can see why you're so successful with women. Frida, directed by Julie Taymor and starring Salma Hayek as the Mexican surrealist Frida Kahlo. Now consider Basquiat, starring Jeffrey Wright and directed by Julian Schnabel, who began his own career as a visual artist. Then Mr. Turner, Mike Lee's immersive account of J.M.W. Turner's life, starring Timothy Spall in the title role. And then the rarely seen Love is the Devil, John Maybury's study of Irish-born artist Francis Bacon, starring Derek Jacobi. Look, why don't you just go, George? I've got to get on with this. I'm going. I'm going. Anyway, when you gave me the keys, it was meant to mean I could live here. What's past is past. Oh, you call yesterday the past? George, I am a painter. This is a studio. That is a painting. You are in the way. But it's a painting of me. Not that anyone would bloody well notice. Oh, thank you for the critique, George. I feel much better now I know where I stand. Now, after that enlightening discussion, will you just... But what makes those films good art? Each strives to be like their subjects, by which I mean, whatever made their subjects unique, the films try their best to avoid the clichés of join the dots and colour within the lines biopics. The struggle, the rejection, the inspiration, the breakthrough. Consider Carol Reed's fatuous adaptation of Irving Stone's The Agon and the Ecstasy. Michelangelo, the chapel's been crowded all day. Master Bonarotti. You claim not to be a painter, but you have sent us all back to school. But we're wondering when are you going to decide to finish the work? Ask yourself that question. Pope will want the ceiling finished. Who else would he choose but you? You've mastered my style already. It is true that I wanted your commission. I admit it freely. But today, I came here in good faith to tell you of my admiration for your work. Thankfully, we have Andrei Tarkovsky's towering biopic of Andrei Rublev. But if you have never seen it, you need to know a few things in advance. Firstly, although it is named after the 15th century painter whom historians hold as not only the first great Russian artist, but one of Russia's greatest ever artists, do not expect the film to tell you all that much about the painter's life. History has retained precious few facts about Rublev. No one knows for certain when or where he was born. And although he took vows and was ordained a monk, when Rublev died at the Antonikov Monastery in Moscow, the abbot there failed to verify the date. As for his birth, Rublev entered the world sometime between 1360 and 1370, perhaps in Peskov, about 300 miles from the Baltic Sea. It appears that by the end of that century, Rublev had begun painting, 
after which, around 1427 at the earliest and 1430 at the latest, he died. Here is Emily Silbergeld of Brandeis University speaking at the Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art in 2018 on what you and I may call Russian icons, but what Silbergeld regards as thresholds of the invisible world. I would argue that most importantly, the term icon describes the function and the experience. Uh, we might think of it as a window, or as I express in the title of this exhibition, a threshold that bridges here to the other there. Uh, it reveals just enough that we might long for what lies beyond its surface. Tchaikovsky's picture runs for over three hours, yet at no point do we see Rublev do anything we could define as artistic. In addition, the last hour of the film focuses on the part of the monk's life where he took a 10-year vow of silence. Furthermore, that last hour doesn't even focus on Rublev, but instead on the casting of a giant bronze bell for the monastery at Vladimir. In other words, this is a film about a painter and we never see him paint. That's like making a movie about Peter Tchaikovsky and never once hearing his music. In which case, here is one of Tchaikovsky's works from 1878, the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. But Tarkovsky wasn't interested in the cliché of the artist struggling before the easel. He was interested in showing the world around the artist in order to show how Rublev made visible the spiritual or invisible world. Tarkovsky's decision works because after nearly three hours of making us look at a monochromatic screen, he and cinematographer Vadim Yusov climax the film with eight majestic minutes of Rublev's greatest works. It is only then that we celebrate the blazes of deep gold, marion blue, beatific white, hectic red and fragile green. All of which combine to deliver one of cinema's few truly transcendental moments. Here is the music that accompanies those final images, composed by Vyacheslav Avchenikov. Now, here is the thing. The word icon, Greek in origin, means resemblance. And for Russian painters, that mostly meant portrait. And portrait meant the face. Yet the film is hardly what we could call a portrait. The camera is kept well away from Rublev, instead showing the world around him. So what we come to see is not a portrait of the artist, but rather a man in history. The Christianization of Russia had begun around the end of the 10th century with Vladimir the Great, who, having fled Scandinavia, converted from paganism and oversaw the baptism of the Kievan Rus. At that time, war was being waged against Islam. But in the 13th century, the Mongol Empire, led by Batu Khan, swept across the eastern steppe with an all-conquering army. Khan was very tolerant of different religions. 
So the power struggles that were continuing were all between rival princes. And what Rublev saw around him was war and pillaging, pain and suffering. What Tarkovsky wanted to show was that an artist need not necessarily paint what he sees around him, but rather look at the world from a fresh perspective. And that idea is indicated by the unusual way Tchaikovsky chose to open the film. The film does not open with Rublev. Indeed, the characters we see in the opening, we never see again. And unlike the rest of the film, where the sequences are announced with captions specifying where and when they take place, the opening has no such announcement. So, completely out of context, we see a group of men outside a church fleeing an angry mob. Who they are and why they are being chased is never explained. The men try to flee in a hot air balloon. But the first manned hot air balloon flight wouldn't take place for another 400 years. 1783 to be exact, when Joseph Michel and Jacques-Étienne Montgolfier flew for 10 minutes above the town of Annonay in the Auvergne region of southern France. Why would Tarkovsky attempt such a glaring anachronism? A lot of people have interpreted the hot air balloon sequence as a metaphor for an artist's need for free expression, while others consider Tarkovsky's own yearning to escape the Soviet Union's oppressive regime. It was in 1962, just after he had completed his debut feature, Ivan's Childhood, that Tarkovsky first proposed a film on the medieval Russian artist. Tchaikovsky's hope was the biopic would commemorate the 600th anniversary of the artist's birth. There was, however, the small issue communists had with commemorating anything to do with religion. After all, it was the church, together with the Romanov dynasty, that had oppressed the people for close to half a millennium. But even though by the early 1960s the Soviet Union was being led through a period of de-Stalinization by Premier Nikita Khrushchev, it would be three disruptive years before Tchaikovsky was granted permission to make his film. Part of the delay was undoubtedly due to Khrushchev being removed from power by Leonid Brezhnev, who, the instant he was appointed General Secretary, dismantled what Khrushchev had done and reinstated hardline Marxism. So, Tchaikovsky was given the go-ahead in the expectation that he would depict Rublev not as a spiritual man, but as a nationalist typifying the Russian character, stoical and socialist. This Tarkovsky did, but only after a fashion, which resulted in the authorities stepping in and putting the film in a state of limbo for five years. It wasn't seen in theatres until 1971. Here is a work composed in 1883 by Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, The Lord's Prayer. Andrei Rublev was not released in the West until 1972, and with such a protracted delay, Western critics were predisposed to interpreting the opening scene as an allegory about oppression. The problem is that Western critics used to think that what qualified Russian art as great was if its theme were about a yearning for freedom. Here, giving another interpretation, and one I'm more inclined to agree with, is London City Lit lecturer Dr Mary Wilde speaking here on the Curzon Artificial Eye Blu-ray edition of the film. 
The prologue of André Rublev is one of the most poetic opening scenes in the history of cinema. The scene foreshadows the fate of André Rublev, a character who tries to flee from the harsh realities of medieval Russia, sustaining visions of a celestial realm that inspire his art and become the subject of his paintings. The film describes a path from the conflict to unity, from the fall of man to the last judgment and ultimate resurrection. Elsewhere, Wilde suggests that Tarkovsky's cinema is best viewed against an extended timeline. Very little in his films, if anything, is contemporary. Almost all of it emerges on a very long historical and philosophical arc. So, if those earlier critics had broadened their perspectives, they would have seen the hot air balloon was not about an artist yearning to be free, but rather reflective of Rubas' own artistic journey, one which resulted in his seeking a new vision for the world. For centuries, Russian art had been dominated by the Byzantine tradition, in which biblical events were depicted to instill fear in the congregation. Which is why, when commissioned to paint The Last Judgment, Rublev struggles so much with the project, he ultimately abandons it. I cannot paint this. It disgusts me. Can't you understand? I do not want to scare people. Try to understand, Danila. Here is more from Tchaikovsky's Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. This time, the hymn of the Cherubim. Now let us consider the film's final sequence. Titled simply The Bell, it takes place in 1423 and covers the forging of a giant bronze bell for the war-damaged monastery of Vladimir. It is heralded as a monumental event for the Grand Prince. So monumental, he has invited emissaries from as far away as Venice to witness the ceremony. The person in charge of the ambitious scheme is Bariska, who, despite only being a youth, is deemed qualified because he is the son of a great bellmaker. As for Rublov, who has now taken on his vow of silence, he just observes as Bariska oversees the enormous project. But the point here is the casting of Bariska. He is played by Nikolai Berlyayev, who had played the lead role in Tarkovsky's first film, Ivan's Childhood. There, Berlyayev had played an orphan who enlists to fight the Nazi invaders. Soviet audiences would have recognised Berlyayev and seen a comparison between the two roles. Ivan was seeking revenge for the murderer's parents, while Bariska is seeking to overcome his father's reputation by creating his own. Seemingly possessed with incredible self-belief, Bariska is relentless in his pursuit of forging the bell, and is utterly indifferent to those who toil under his obsessive demands. Which is understandable because Bariska knows he faces execution if he does not complete the task on time. But Bariska succeeds and then he collapses, breaking down in tears, confessing that his father died with his secrets, never having told Bariska how to forge a bronze bell. Bariska just made it up as he went, pretending to know. After a decade of silence, Rublev finally speaks, using his words to comfort the emotionally exhausted youth. Rublev says he should rejoice that he will now go on to cast more bells, and he, Rublev, will resume painting. 
But how could Boriska have known what to do? How did he get all those calculations correct? A hint comes in Tarkovsky's camera. As the people celebrate, the camera cranes up and moves away to give us a view that subtly echoes the view from the hot air balloon. Or, to appropriate Emily Silbergel's phrase, Boriska, like Rublev, lived on the threshold of the invisible world. He saw something no one else could see. Call it a vision, a dream or divine inspiration, but a better world is what we all seek.